Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we're meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. If you would please remain standing while I read the passage of the day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. In kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Please take your seat. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this. We thank you for this gift of this morning to come into your holy presence and to consider the ransoming work of your son, Jesus Christ. To consider this time of year as we look toward remembering the cross and Easter season, Paschal season. I pray today that each person here would see Christ They would see his work. They would see his service and not our own. We honor you today, our Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. You probably have heard the saying, it goes like this, earn your keep, pay your dues. You, you, You probably heard that saying maybe connected to a work environment. In a work environment, you might be that person who is sweeping the floor in the storeroom, the storeroom floor, so that one day you could become the CEO with the corner office with the view. You see, it's a a lot about uh, this idea about paying our dues in our society, earning our keep. You know, working hard because one day you'll get to that spot that you deserve. Isn't that the way that the world works? I work to get what I deserve. Isn't that the way it all works? Yeah, I I was um, so happy when uh, ESPN put out that film. It was a special called The Last Dance. The Last Dance came out in 2020, and when that that special came out, 
Uh, for those of us that were, that were around during the 90s and we knew Michael Jordan, it took us right back to seeing MJ and Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson winning six championships. And then in that story, we were surprised to find out that the ownership of the Chicago Bulls were going to commit to ending the season with their final championship. Otherwise, they were going to say to the Chicago Bulls that your season was over before it was really even over. I mean, surely they deserved to play until they were done. Surely they had earned their keep as the Chicago Bulls. I don't know. Um, I think that's the way that you would think things would work. Well, today, we're going to learn in our story today that we as people ask this question in life. And the question is about who will serve us. We ask the question about how we will earn our keep in life. We ask the question about what it means to pay our dues in life. And so when we see our story today in this uh, gospel story, I believe the disciples are asking the question, when are we going to get what we deserve? And that's the question that I believe many of us face in our lives today. And so let's look at our passage here in Matthew 20. It goes like this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And she said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Jesus, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. And Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Let's stop there. Today in our message, I'm going to argue that the question the disciples were asking was a question like this. Who will serve me? That's the question. And I'm going to argue that Jesus came to save them from that question so that he could help them ask a different question. The question they were asking was, who will serve me? And he came to save them, to help them answer, or better yet, ask a different question. In this section, I want us to see three disordered desires in their hearts that led them to want to be served, to want to be first, to want to have position. Number one, we see here that in their hearts, these disciples, they wanted position. You see in the text, you have the mother of James and John seeking to have their sons be one at their right, one at the left of the throne of Jesus Christ. Now we know that in most cultures, especially in this time, for a king, they would have a court of people around them. You'd have the king, then you'd have second in charge and third in charge. You'd have various positions around the king. And so these disciples have been with Jesus for, for years, and they're almost at the pinnacle of the ministry with Jesus. He's been, 
uh, teaching from city to city. He has now hundreds of people following him everywhere he goes. That's why you'd have the mother in the camp with him. Because the mother's there, she's been seeing what's going on, and she also sees that James and John have a special position with Jesus. And so the mother asks for this position for her sons, but then her sons are right there beside her, wanting that position to be one at the right and one at the left. Now this is not a, a shocking idea for Jesus because just one chapter before this, Jesus told them that they would have a position. He said to them in chapter 19 of Matthew, he said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for, nine, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So I think it's fair to say that these disciples were prepared to gain a position in the kingdom of God to come. But I think there's a disordered desire in the hearts of these disciples to ask to be number one and to ask to be number two. Do you see that? The mother of James and John wanted their sons to have position in the kingdom. This is a disordered desire that is present in the hearts of the disciples. The second observation I want you to see and disordered desire is here. James looking at Jesus, and Jesus looking at James and John, Jesus says this, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. <laughs> he said to them, you will drink my cup but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So this idea of cup, what is the cup? The cup is a metaphor that we, we see throughout Scripture. It has really two sides to it. The one side some of you might know and might be familiar with from the book of Psalms, Psalms 116 says, I lift up my cup, the cup of salvation, and I call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. So this cup is a cup of salvation. It's a cup of blessing. Think about Psalm 23 where it says, my cup overflows, right? So this, this, this cup is a cup of blessing, but it's also a cup of judgment, a cup of suffering. Because in the book of Isaiah, it says this, wake up, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the land or drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of wrath. You have drunk the cup of wrath 
who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her hand, all of the sons she has brought up. Devastation, destruction, famine, the sword. Who will comfort you? So we have this metaphor of the cup. On one hand, it's a cup of blessing, a cup of salvation in parts of the Old Testament. And in other parts of the Old Testament, it's a cup of judgment. So when the disciples are asking this question to Jesus about drinking the cup, I submit to you, they were thinking it was a cup of suffering. One of the, one of the disorders of their hearts was that they wanted position. The second disorder of their heart is that they wanted to suffer, but they wanted to suffer for their position. Do you see that? They want the position, they're challenged with the suffering, and they're prepared to suffer for their position. In uh, church history, there were a group of people called the, kind of like a set asceticism. There's a, there's a group of uh, monastic leaders, and mostly in the Catholic faith, even in, even in some Protestantism, where they would, they, would, they would abuse themselves with lashing or with days of not eating, or they would stay up for long periods of time, maybe stay up for days. They would do things in their life to cause suffering. And that suffering they would put on themselves was about proving their righteousness before God. So in, the same, in, in a similar way, I believe James and John are trying to prove their righteousness before God and prove that they have what it takes to drink that cup. This is a disordered desire in their heart because somewhere in their heart, they're asking the question, who is going to serve me? The third one I want us to see here, if you look down, it, 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 it's right, 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 right in the middle here where we see the disciples. And the disciples, uh, and, when the, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And so I, I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, why are they indignant with the two brothers, James and John? What are they mad about? Are they mad because they would never ask Jesus for position? I don't think that's quite it. I, I, wonder, I, I wonder if they were mad because they've been arguing for most of Jesus' ministry about who was greatest. Was it Peter? Maybe it was James. Maybe it was John. Who was really the greatest disciple? Have you ever asked that question? I think they were asking that question. I think that was what the indignation was about. These hearts they have are about to be exposed in the lesson that Jesus wants to teach them today. Here comes the lesson. The next verse here. He's now going to help them remember who they are. Excluding Judas, all of these men were men after God's heart. Judas was not a man after God's heart. He was one among the disciples. So excluding Judas, Jesus is about to remind them of who they are. 
Here he goes. <clears throat> Jesus called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. <clears throat> And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see, they have a, a deep knowing. They, they know in their hearts. They know in their experience what it feels like to be under Roman rule, under Gentile authority. I was doing some research and found out that there were over 2,000 crucifixions of Jewish people up Around, the, around BC 4, 4, 4 BC, there were 2,000 Jewish people who were crucified. And so it's almost like in their lifetime, they know of thousands of people who have been crucified among their own people. So they're very aware of what it feels like and what it looks like to be ruled by the Gentiles. And Jesus says, this is not, this is not who you are. And then he also says they exercise authority over them. This word exercising is almost like a charismatic exercising. You have um, leaders in the Roman government were perceived to be godlike figures. Charismatic, powerful figures who would lord over and control and incite the crowds, incite the people. And so Jesus is calling them away from this type of attitude, this type of thinking, this type of mindset, this type of heart. You might be asking, why would he go this direction? Well, I think it's clear that he's going this direction because he could see in their hearts the desire to ask for the position, the power, and the kingdom. And he's, he's seeking to save them from that question in their hearts about who will serve them by what he's going to say next. Here we go. He says here, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So this word servant is uh, the word diakonos in the Greek. And that's, a, that's the idea of ministering to someone, sharing of your gifts, giving of yourself, ministering. That's the servant. And so if you're going to be great among the people, you must be a servant is what he says. The measure of greatness won't amount to your power or won't flow from your power it won't flow from your position. It won't flow from your suffering. Your greatness will be seen through your service. And then he says this, the first among you will be your slave. This word is doulos in the Greek. And this is the idea of, a, it's a slave. It's, it's someone who belongs to someone else. So it's not only that you are a servant, but that you belong to the people you serve. And this servant attitude, this, this, this ministry he's calling them to is the heart he wants them to have, these disciples. So he's been pulling them all from this question of where is my position going to be in the kingdom, all the way through their heart condition, 
their desire for power, their desire for position, their desire to suffer to get what they want because they've earned it. They deserve it. They've earned their keep. He's pulling them all the way to this point to humble them down to say that if you will be great, you must become a servant. If you will be first, you must become a slave. You see, it's almost as though they had amnesia. You see, for us as God's people and for these disciples, they know they're made in the image of God. They know they're children of God. They know they're created to be this this humble, kind people of God. But they got swept up into what's popular in the world. They got swept up into what the vision of the world wants for them which is power, prestige, and a great name for their own glory. And he in this moment wants to remind them of who they are. How's he going to do that? Well, um, the year was uh, 2010. And uh, this this man named Scott Bolzen was a CEO of a company. And uh, he was taking his typical midday bathroom break, and he goes into the bathroom, and little did he know at the time, the cleaning crew had poured this solution, like an oily cleaning solution on the floor. He walked into the bathroom, slipped feet above his head. He came crashing down to the ground. Later on that day, he's rushed to the hospital. He sits before his family. He sits before nurses. He sits before the doctors with no recollection of who he was. No recollection of where he'd been. No recollection of what had happened to him. He says these words. As he thinks about his marriage, as he thinks about his life, he goes, these are the things I should have known. I should have known about my first date, my first kiss of my wife, our wedding day, the birthday of my children, all those memories that everyone else in the world shares, these are the things I should have known. I have no emotional attachment to these days. Even when I look at pictures, I don't have any concept of my parents, my wife, my children, my family, relatives. When my wife tells me about my parents, I don't know who they are. It turns into an interview process. I try to gather information. What was I like? What were my parents like? What's it like to be a husband? What's it like to have a family? And the last thing he says here is he says, I think this whole process of having amnesia, I think this whole process is kind of like grieving process. At first I was sad. I was very shocked. Then Then I was scared. Then I was mad. And then I just accepted it. You see, Scott Bolzen had amnesia. He forgot who he was. He forgot all that mattered to him. And the the, the story goes on to say that after he had this accident, they started celebrating his birthday one year at a time. He'd have his first Thanksgiving. He'd have his first anniversary. Everything was new in his life. After this amnesia moment, but it took time for him to start to remember who he was as his wife, his loving wife, shared with him the memories of the past. The loving wife shared the memories of the past. And I think in some weird way, these disciples, 
forgot who they were. And Jesus was reminding them of who they were by seeing him. And here it is. He says these words to them. This is him landing the lesson on their hearts. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served. Think about that. Jesus Christ did not come to be served. You see, most people think about living a life to serve Jesus. Here we have Jesus saying, I came not to be served. You see, Christ is not only, he's not only the, um, the perfect example of a servant, but he's the eternal servant. You see, before he was born, not before he was born, before these disciples were born, he was serving the nation, God's people. While these disciples were walking, he was serving them. When the disciples get to that new kingdom, he will be serving them. Jesus is the eternal servant. It's almost like we could ask, when will Jesus stop serving? When will Jesus stop serving? Well, let me answer that question. Because Jesus here, as he talks to his disciples, is trying to help them and trying to save them from the wrong thinking in life about who or how they will be served. And he wants to show them how they will be served. I'm going to read Luke 12, 35, where he's going to show us what the eternal servant is like. Listen to this. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they, so that they may open the door to him, the master, at once when he comes and knocks. The master's coming. He's knocking. Jesus says this, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Then he says this, truly I say to you, the master will dress himself for service and he will have his servants recline at the table and he will come and he will serve them. Did you guys hear that? Blessed are those servants that the master finds ready and awake when he returns because he will have them recline at the table and he will serve them. Now, read the, now let me finish this portion because this is, this is it. He says, if he comes, that master, if he comes in the second watch and in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You see, in some ways, I think these disciples needed this reminder. Not just in some ways, but I know these disciples needed this reminder because they had been lulled asleep in some ways. They needed to be reminded, they needed to be awakened to this picture of Christ the eternal servant who did not come to be served and who will be serving us for eternity. I want to say something to you that might hurt your feelings. Christ does not need 
your service. Christ does not need your advice. Christ does not need your position. Christ does not need your power. You can't earn your keep. You can't pay your dues. You can't serve enough time. You can't build enough things. He never needed you. He will never need you. He served us because he is a servant. And he will be a servant for eternity. That's why this Luke passage is so important for us to see. That when when he finds us awake on that day, blessed are those servants because he will again demonstrate his service to us. This is Christ. But Christ is not just a good example, is he? No. Christ is the ransom. Christ is the Savior. Christ is the Redeemer, right? So here we go. He said that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the point of the message. A lot of us get lulled into a worldly mentality where we think like the world. These disciples were thinking like the world. And Jesus wanted to teach them that he came to save them from thinking like the world because they wanted to be served. They wanted to be like the rulers and the people of the world. And Christ wanted to show them that his ultimate expression of his service was the ransom. He wanted to show them that he had to pay the price. He had to shed his blood. He had to pay the price they could not pay. He had to live a life they could not live. He had to die the death they could not die. He had to do it for them. Now, let's consider this word ransom for just a moment. It's an amazing concept. One of the earliest things we see about ransom is in the Old Testament with the book of Exodus, where God wants to teach the family, starting in the family, He wants to teach the family what ransom's all about by making sure that every firstborn of the livestock and every firstborn son is redeemed. That every single child and every single firstborn livestock has a redemption process. So literally, every single family would have a redeemed son in their home. Let me read this to you. It says this. It says, every, force, every firstborn man from among, among your sons shall be redeemed. And when in time the, the son comes to ask you, what does this redemption mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in Egypt both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, we, your parents, we sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first open to the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I shall redeem. 
It shall be as a mark on your hand or a frontlet between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So in the Old Testament, the firstborn son was redeemed to remind these families that God had brought in, that God brought their family out of slavery. And so now we have the firstborn son of God, the eternal son of God, now standing here before these disciples, reminding them of what they probably knew, that this son would be the redeemer, that this son would pay the price for his family, that this son would pray, pay the ransom for their sins. This was the ransom for the many that he would pay with his life. He would pay with his life. You think about that cup that um, those disciples thought they could drink. There's really two sides of the cup, right? There was, a, there, was the, there was the side where the cup is a cup of judgment and wrath from God. You see, Jesus drank that cup all the way down. All the wrath of God fell on Jesus for our sins and our iniquities. In many ways, James and John and the rest of the disciples, they did suffer. But they didn't drink the same cup that Jesus drank. But what I want you to think about here, as we come to a close, Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of salvation. The cup he drank was the cup of communion. The cup he drank was the cup of wrath of God so that his people of God could experience the blessings of God and the salvation of God through the communion of God with the saints of God. All of the things he was doing in the entire work of his life was to give himself as a ransom for many to be the servant to the people of God the eternal servant of God. This story today is a story where the disciples learned that it wasn't about position. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about being first. It wasn't about being last. It was about Christ and Him being the servant that came to die for the sins of the world. And that they were invited to ask a different question now. The question used to be, who will serve me? But now the question that flows from the cup, the cup of freedom, the cup of grace, the cup of life, the cup of salvation, the new question is, who do I get to serve? Because now I'm free to serve. I'm free to give. I'm free to love. Free to offer grace. Free to walk in truth. I'm not obligated to make my way, to earn my dues or pay my dues or earn my stake, whatever you want to call it. I don't have to fake it to make it anymore. Because he drank the cup of wrath, I now can drink the cup of life. And I get to come together with the people of God to drink every week of the things of God that are given by the grace of God in Christ. This is the message of ransom for our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this today. We thank you for your grace. 
We thank you for um, just this moment, Lord, we get to remember that you were the eternal servant, that you did not come to be served, but that you came to lay your life down for us, to pay for us, to pay for our sins, to give us life, that you would drink the wrath of God on yourself for our sins to serve us and that we could do nothing, nothing to give it back, but just to receive and to walk in joy, to walk in life. We thank you for these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.